0: spending a summer in Cooperstown with no tourists. It's
1: really bizarre. So, um, you know, one of the things that I I love about summer in Cooperstown, to some degree as someone who wasn't born and raised here and really kind of live in and around New York and in and around Chicago, um, the summer brings an energy that the rest of the year doesn't have. For most people, and I get this because I feel it a little bit, um, you know, it does change your life and usually somewhat adversely. You know, you can't go to your local coffee shop or restaurants with the same ease you can in February. But without summer, those places don't exist in February. <laughs> so to me, like, it's, a, it's an obvious trade-off. Um, the other thing besides just kind of the general energy of the street is a lot of my people uh, in the baseball world or, or just friends from all over, they'll visit in summer. They'll visit to do research on a book or they're coming up for an event. And, you know, sometimes they stay with me. Sometimes we just get together. So I'm kind of missing my friends who would normally be here. And that, like you talk about talking about baseball, like, I mean, there are so many guys who have come up and, you know, we'll go out for dinner and, sit for like three hours (laughs) opening packs of baseball cards you know talking baseball so I I definitely um, miss it it's not great for the business community to put it mildly and the hope is that they'll survive you know it's not unlike everywhere else I'm not sure where you're based in the city somewhere in
0: Chicago yeah
1: you're in Chicago I thought 847 Where in Chicago
0: Um, I'm in Edgewater
1: in the north side yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So we lived the year we were in the city. We were like Gold Coast, and then we moved up to Buffalo Grove, and then Lincolnshire. So well, yeah, north, I went
0: just like, to Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire. So yeah. Oh, you're a Stevenson grad? Yeah. Oh, so where'd you grow up? Not in Edgewater. Grew up in Vernon Hills. So.
1: Oh, okay, great, great.
0: Kind so of, we go
1: back at least once a year. We love it out there.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I'm the kind of person who, uh, when people ask where I grew up, I always try to say Chicago, and then yeah. if they tell me they're from the actual city, then I have to go. From the suburbs.
1: To, yeah, yeah, suburbs. But what a great suburb. I mean, I love that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm not sure where I was headed with that. Uh, what we're we talking about?
0: But, uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's interesting because what you're describing to me um, is essentially the, the separation of people from their families that um, that we've all mm-hmm. experienced. And Yes. What you're describing is kind of your separation from your baseball family in a yeah. non metaphorical way. Like this, these are the, the yeah. family that would come up and visit you once a year, and now because we're all still, most of us, at least the sensible ones, sheltering in place. Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, that. Yeah, it's true.
1: Um, what the thought I had was like you know about business failing, and you know it's not unlike Edgewater or the suburb or the city, but for Cooperstown, I don't know if you've ever been here. Oh, um, many Yeah. Okay. So you know. It's basically concentrated on Main Street. I mean there are other businesses throughout the village and outside the village, but basically Main Street is a single street so you can see the devastation clearly. Oh, that's And I don't, you know, I don't know how we come out of it. I think it's making people think of a lot of things that I tried to do when I was mayor, which is how do you diversify a local economy? The reality is the biggest business in Cooperstown is our hospital, which is hmm slightly south of the Hall of Fame. Um, That's the year-round economic engine, but the tourist engine, obviously, is the hall and the museums. So I think it's making people think about what this future is going to look like. And I actually think that long-term, it's going to be helpful to us because people are leaving New York. People are leaving New York, and they're going to, like, the Catskills, and they're going, like, we're just, like, one kind of county removed from that area. So people are starting to think about where they want to live, how they want to live. And now they've all discovered, whoever's lucky enough to still have a job, uh, they're they're realizing they can work at home. Hmm. And if you can work at home, then why do you want to be in a 600 square foot apartment <laughs> with three roommates?
0: <laughs> you know, as, as someone who spent almost nine years in New York City, I mean, that is a question- Yeah, you know. Itself, really, yeah.
1: So I mean, there's a great energy to New York and Chicago, and being downtown. And you know, we're we're still trying to figure out how to get back to Chicago, like maybe as a second place. Like, Mm. this I miss. I mean, I miss. I was a Cub season ticket holder for a really long time. (laughs) I miss. I miss that. Yeah. I mean, you know, funny to be in Cooperstown and virtually never go to an MLB game.
0: Yeah. Because I mean, it's far. Yeah, when when the option was the Hall of Fame game, the only one for so long. And now that's for a decade at least.
1: Yeah, yeah. The last one was in 08. um, And it's really not super hard to get from here to Yankee Stadium. I mean, it's a full day to drive there, see a game, come back. Mm -hmm. Um, And I understand missing the energy of a city. But, boy, my friends in Brooklyn, Manhattan, who have been cooped up in an apartment with small kids for,
0: whatever, three months now, they're oh, going yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, in Chicago, I didn't leave Edgewater. I didn't leave the neighborhood for a solid yeah. two months after shelter and yeah. went down. It's only been the past month or so where I've at least started taking long walks to venture out. Uh, yeah. And the Cubs actually did a really awesome thing for at least a couple of Fridays um, when the weather started turning good here that they would send their organist up to play oh, on nice. the afternoons at five o'clock for an hour. And I met up with uh, one of my Cub blogger best friends for just to hang out outside on Ballpark Corner, or Ballpark oh, Ball Corner on Waveland. Yeah. Listen, and it was just like this sensation of, oh, yeah, this is what nice things used to feel like. Yeah. Uh, it seems like was, such
1: a distant memory now, doesn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it, it, it literally felt like walking into the before times, which, uh, <laughs> yeah, which is, I, I well, guess... Leaving Edgewater to go to the before times is not the worst thing in the world, but uh,
1: yeah, right, right. And Edgewater's nice, and you're so you're close to the train, right? And yeah, you can,
0: yeah, whenever nice. whenever taking the train becomes like you know feasible without thinking, yeah, worrying about if I, am I going to walk out with the virus, you know? Yeah, right, right. No, it's, that's another it's thing about be living that that's also become much scarier. At <laughs> uh, right, your point makes going. It, it's interesting to me that that uh, that this could create a boon for upstate, from what, what what you're telling me a little bit.
1: I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to to frame it that way because there's so yeah. much land. Mm-hmm. But you know, <laughs> uh, Cooperstown's population in the village is about 1,800. So look, if 40 new people moved here, that would be a huge percentage. <laughs> you know, yeah. that would be. Or, or if they bought like property right outside the village, where there's always property, and and houses for sale um it's hard to say but it just feels that way to me Mm -hmm. um based on some fact but part of it is how we're going to come out of this and part of you know what makes cooperstown appealing to visitors also is what makes it appealing to us it is kind of a place that doesn't exist anymore like a real small village that has restaurants and shops and certainly for me like the handful of baseball card shops is not a negative. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, not. I mean, I love that. So to me, it offers a lot, um and you just got to kind of preserve that uh, yeah. as well. And the community is such a strong community that everyone gets that on some level that we need to kind of preserve what we care
0: about. So, yeah. I mean, I uh, just... back over. During again back in the before times during the campaign uh, the Democratic primary it was there was one day where Pete Buttigieg like spewed out some pablum the usual bullshit about <laughs> small town America is the yeah, yeah, heart yeah. and soul of this country yeah and I quote tweeted that with uh, I I put out a tweet uh, ranking these are the only good small towns I've been to in my experience. <laughs> One, Cooperstown, two, Gambier, Ohio, home of Kenyon College. That's it. That's the list. <laughs> is that where you went to school? Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the most wonderful places in the world. And kind of like Cooperstown, a place that doesn't really exist anywhere else. It, it is yeah. like the idealized version of a liberal arts college where yeah. the town is literally a hill surrounded by cornfields with no stop. Right. It's yeah. so Did Coward, you ever have a professor named Peter Rutkoff? Oh, yeah. Yes, I had uh, Peter's class for a Chicago history seminar. And uh, Yeah,
1: so yeah. Peter is a Cooperstown regular.
0: Nice, yes. He has, a, he has a summer
1: house here. Awesome. So there's a weird kind of Kenyan, I don't want to call it like a Kenyan mafia, but since I lived yeah. in Cooperstown, I've met like several people who went to Kenyan and are in Cooperstown or around Cooperstown. So, yeah, Peter's kind of the poster boy for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, Kenyan is all about you know the English department and books and baseball. Obviously, yeah. is the sport of books as we were about right, to talk about. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it makes all the sense in the world that Kenyan professors would find their way <laughs> to Hunter, a here. small town in this country. Absolutely. Uh, I will put a pin in that to do the show open real quick, and we will jump right in to, to plug in your book right, right away here. Okay. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the Outsports Baseball podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, episode number 32, the Sandy Koufax episode of Three Strikes You're Out. My name is Ken Schultz. I'm a contributing writer for Outsports, Baseball Prospectus and Cubs Den. Also, still occasional stand-up comedian, even though baseball is starting, mm-hmm. stand-up is not, which means my industry might be more sensible than MLB, which is weird. Yeah. The other voice you are listening to right now on this podcast is the former mayor of Cooperstown, New York, and the author of Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball, the definitive study of the 1981 season, Jeff Katz is joining me. Jeff, thank you for being here. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. It is a pleasure to talk and a pleasure to meet you um, and uh, having you on because uh, I've, I've actually been waiting several weeks to invite you, waiting for like any sign of hope that we would have <laughs> some kind of se- short season this year because you wrote the book uh, about baseball's other kind of d- defining short season, 1981, the other year that was split in half by a player strike that was uh, a month and a half long, two months uh, yeah,
1: about that month and a half. I mean, from, uh, end of June to beginning of August. basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, so I wanted to have you on specifically cause it's not a perfect comp, obviously, cause 1981, the biggest threat to our nation that we were facing was Reagan at that point. <laughs> so, uh, not, not quite in the level of coronavirus, though still <laughs> bad. Um, but, but, uh, of probably before this period, the worst economy oh yeah in the last 50 years yeah um so that's yeah that i didn't even think of that that that's that's a, definitely a good similarity coming out of yeah right from that era uh
1: well there was a, a big unemployment spike and a huge uh rise in interest rates that kind of crushed you know business investment and things like that. And part of it was kind of a Reagan policy thing hmm. um, that eventually, I mean, the country did come out of it. And that's really the beginning of a lot of the economic disparity that became so big, but that's how we came out of it. You mean the economic disparity that made
0: America great? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah.
1: exactly. For some <laughs>
0: so, kind of, I, I guess jumping off of uh, this economic topic then, um, Given the fact that baseball spent, again, all of late June through mid-August, essentially shooting itself in the dick for the nation to see, was there a concern that, similar concern to now, uh, that it would take, like, not just a couple months, but maybe years for the sport to recover economically from putting itself on pause for that long? You know, without
1: having a real history in that, the 72 season was delayed... Uh, by a strike, Uh, but then the season played straight through with a mixed amount of games. Uh, It was really poorly thought out. Um, So there wasn't a history of, like, what happens when a season is interrupted or canceled. Even though this one hasn't been, it feels that way because spring training had started. Um, So there wasn't a lot to draw on to think about um, will fans come back. There was certainly hostility. It was... More of a time where people were more on the owner side than the player side. I think that is not the case this Mm -hmm. time. Although fans hating millionaire players and supporting billionaire owners to me has always been a freakishly weird logic graph. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But as soon as they came back in the second half, attendance did drop. And by the next season, it was fine. Um, And I think because it felt like an aberration as you go forward to the, whatever, one or two day strike in 85, and then the big strike at the end of 94, that really did sour people more long-term. And the loss of the World Series, I think, is a big part of that. Um, so there wasn't like super concern other than things did look bad. I mean, in the middle of summer where baseball's the only sport, and that is similar to now, right? Baseball right. could have taken the reins and said, this is our time, this is our season, we're going to lead the way instead of basically having the NBA and the NHL seem to be more ahead of them in terms of how to move forward. And Granted, those two leagues played their full seasons, basically 80% or so different kind of scenario. But um, when all of the sports world focuses on baseball in summer, and not only isn't baseball there, but it's
0: not there in an ugly way in a divisive way, it leaves a mark for sure. Absolutely does. And uh, kind of jumping off of that, then um, uh, one of the big reasons why it's it's so divisive is because the owners in 2020 have used the pandemic for the past six weeks as an excuse to essentially try to split the union and try to turn players against one another. And you wrote a great deal in, in split season about how a lot of the 81 strike, a lot of the reason why that it took as long as it did to to, to uh, end up being settled was because the owners strongly believed that the players were not the ones driving the union, that they believed that it was Marvin Miller who was kind of right. manipulating them. And they, they couldn't conceive that the players would stay united for that long.
1: Yeah. I mean, owners have always seen players as morons (laughs) so they and and to some degree that is um a capitalist ownership point of view right that you know to be fair i might throw out an example kurt schilling i rest my case yeah fair enough um but you know there's always an ownership thing saying oh my people would never behave this way they love me and i treat them like gold and it takes some outside person to stir them up Mm -hmm. So there's a a condescension towards the players. Players are pretty smart. Um, They were certainly smart then. They were smart in 94. They're smart now. Ownership attitudes um, don't change, even though ownership does, right? So back in 81, it was still kind of a power struggle of kind of old family owners like Gussie Bush, people like that, you know, Calvin Griffith in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. who were like, how dare these peons even dare speak to us this way and ask for our finances. So there was a lot of that. Now it's just kind of a corporate, you know, consultant type of thing. It's all dollars and cents. And it's always been dollars and cents in a big way. But I think one of the problems of the last few years is um, I think ownership perception of Tony Clark, even though, I mean, i am not, I'm Not really name-dropping him because he's an important figure here. I mean, I've met Tony a few times, and Tony is a super smart dude Mm -hmm. and a very accomplished dude, and I like him. Um, But definitely the owners have gotten the best of the union over the last few uh, contracts. And I talked to someone who was kind of highly placed in the union back in the day. They were concerned when Tony got the job because their feeling was Tony would be perceived as a player. Mm Mm-hmm. And all the negatives that owners have towards players. Um, I think to some degree that's been borne out. Um, so, you know, ownership will always take opportunities to use a crisis to their advantage. And, you know, what, what was true in 81 was the baseball union was strong and getting stronger as real industrial unions were getting crushed. Right, so you know at the end of the baseball strike comes the air traffic controller's strike, and Reagan destroys that union um again, that's another path that led us to uh beginning of where we were now, so you know unions have been vilified by certain types and successfully, and having the players be that you know. Villain for owners, it's an easy card to play because people still want to believe that. Uh, and yet, I think in this, and and there is a both sidesism that even great writers like Jason Stark and Ken Rosenthal, uh, who who are very smart people, they're not you know simple, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it's easy to say there's you know both sides need to do what's good for the game and good for the country. The owners kept coming in with bad and worse plans and the players just said no we don't want to accept your terrible ideas that's not a both sides problem and i think one of the things that will have hopefully a lingering effect on how people look at sports play issues, shoes is granted both sides i said we shouldn't do that but (laughs) both you know both sides are trying to do (laughs) both sides are trying to make the economically best case for their side but the fact that the players want to play more games and the owners want to play less games should not be forgotten, right? right? right. If the owners had their druthers, they would play a seven-day season and get <laughs> into the postseason where they get all the money and the players get to split the gate, which is the smallest piece of it. And we saw this, what, last week in the midst of all this stuff, MLB announces a 1000000000 dollars oh, yeah. year contract with Turner or whatever the terms were. Again, like, and while they're telling the players, we have no money, we're out of money, you know, this is a disaster for all of us. It's like, it's so obviously nonsensical, and I think that it was mostly perceived that way, and who is to blame is probably a long-term good for how people perceive it. It's not a long-term good because you can clearly see a strike in the future. You can clearly
0: see it coming. I, I am not looking forward at all to the winter of 2021 going into 2022. It, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that if next year gets like anything close to a, a point where you can at least travel a bit and sit in the stands and feel yeah. relatively safe, I'm going to try to like blow out, just go nuts on baseball trips next year. <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take after that to, to get a, a normal season again. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's it's interesting that um, you know as you mentioned in '81 how easy it was for the owners to kind of manipulate public opinion against the players because obviously that had been the game for right. decades. Like you go back to the days of Yankees owners convinced their fans to boo Joe DiMaggio for one year. Yeah, right, right. Um, and now one of the things you mentioned that uh, Stark and Rosenthal, who are are great great writers, obviously right. But because they probably have to protect a lot of their sources on the management side, they have an incentive to try to push the both sides' narratives. But right. counter that, you also have a large group of int- influential baseball writers and baseball uh, Twitter celebrities yeah. who have no no horse in this race and see what's right. going on. And can call out the owners for what they're doing, which essentially is yeah. you're giving the same proposal over and over and over, just three different ways of essentially trying to to, to create the same financial picture. Like I've right. like that did an in-depth uh, study on that. So yeah. I think it's the, the growth of baseball independent media between Fangraphs and Prospectus and Joe Sheehan, guys like yeah. that, that really have helped kind of push against that narrative and help right. people understand that it's not bullshit yeah. And right. that being on the player's side is, is not rooting for greedy millionaires out to destroy the game. It's rooting for workers who are. Worker, out. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's also beneficial about social media and it was a great um, for as long as it lasted a couple of days, it was a really great PR blitz by the players saying where and when, We're ready to play. Tell us where and when. And it forced the ownership to say, hold on a second. So you have people like Trout, like a lot of players with Twitter accounts saying, I'm ready. We're just waiting for the owners. Tell us where and when, where and when. It was a very effective multi-day thing. And, you know, even though we, you know, people who follow it closely understand what's behind that, Mm -hmm. you know, impose the season and we'll, see what happens after that mm-hmm. and i'm glad you know so when i was mayor of cooperstown we had a couple of unions in our small village uh one for the police and one for the workers the public works workers and they were both represented by the teamsters and the same person and it's not that i'm a labor you know professional but i wrote a book about labor so i have some right. idea of how negotiations <laughs> go probably most of us have done yeah yeah <laughs> and uh It was very interesting to kind of, at least to me, this was the crucial thing. And I'm glad the players ended up having ownership decide what to do. Because when I read that the players were being asked to waive their grievance rights, Mm -hmm. one of the things I always saw is like the worker side has legal rights. So does management. And it was weird for me to be on the management side because I'm a pretty fair guy and I wasn't mm-hmm. looking to screw anyone, but I do believe in the contracts and the negotiation, right? I have other people that I represent too, right? right. Um, but union leaders would always try to get management, at least in my personal experience, to bargain away management rights. Hmm. And I won't go into tremendous detail, but I'd be like, no. They're like, well, other people do it. I'm like, that's fine for them. These are our legal rights. And once the players, you know, if they were to give up their grievance rights for this year, then we know how this goes. They want to say, well, we we know that it's not a non-starter. You already agreed. So how much will you and will you not agree with? Because you've already decided it's okay for a year. And I'm really glad... They didn't give that up because that would totally hurt them long-term.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I I might be remembering this wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong about this, but wasn't it a player grievance that eventually ended up stopping the uh, 94-95 strike and bringing them back after the replacement players debacle? Because the ownership, when they declared the impasse and brought in the replacement players, that's when the players took them to uh, the NLRB, And are eventually able to get then judge Sonia Sotomayor to uh, to the ruling that the owners had bargained in bad faith. And that was the point where the owners kind of throw up their hands and say, yep, okay, we got to open it up to you guys now and actually do this right.
1: Right. And I think, you know, with that history, I I think where ownership is more savvy now, certainly the commissioner is savvy this way. And I think a lot of ownership is savvy. Um, They know not to blatantly stumble into illegality that was not true about owners in the 80s it wasn't true in 94 right there was still a sense that you know you could do what you want right like i mean and in between those two is collusion right which was so i mean i'm older than you and we we had just moved in to we had just moved to chicago in february of 87 And a week or so later, Dawson signed with the Cubs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody knew what was going on because Andre Dawson, one of the best players in the league, is basically unwanted and goes to the Cubs and says, I will accept anything you pay me. Mm -hmm. Right? And then the owners ended up paying so much more in the settlements (laughs) than they gained in the collusion. But the collusion is also a power thing, right? Absolutely. Um, but but it was too blatant. I think owners now, and owners from a negotiating point of view, they might lose a case, but it's not going to be so clear. And uh, like one of the things in '81, when I was doing the research, um, nobody had the NLRB transcripts for some reason. Like the Hall didn't have it. I couldn't find it online. I, I found the injunction transcript online, which was interesting reading but the actual kind of NLRB, bad faith thing. And I called the NLRB and they're like, well, we don't actually keep everything, but we might have that. So I got the whole transcript and it was amazing because ownership was so entangled in their own logic and their own structure. So you had owners, you had a negotiator who worked for seemingly ownership, you had a commissioner who really didn't have power of negotiating, and everyone saying things, owners are saying one thing, different owners are saying different things, the commissioner saying different things, their negotiator saying, yeah, don't listen to any of them, even though I'm their agent, I don't really listen to that. Like, it was so... I mean, it was such a clusterfuck that, like, you couldn't possibly work your way through it, you know, logically.
0: Yeah.
1: Ownership is much too smart now. Mm-hmm. So I think if the union does file a grievance, it'll be an interesting case. And who even knows who's on these labor relation boards these days? There's so many vacancies and and political operatives um, that who who knows how these things will bear out but it was good to see the players respond in a way that people think they don't anymore right which is with unity and when the owners kind of said well let's cut your star salaries much bigger than your lower salary guys it certainly was a way to signal what the motivation was and the Mm -hmm. players responded in kind so um i think the players on the whole have looked good um in in a situation where no one can look that good. Right. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, look, they have plans and they're going to try to move forward. And I don't know that there's still going to be a season.
0: Yeah. If I mean, half
1: of the Mets test positive, there's not going to be a Mets. So, you know. <laughs> unfortunately,
0: 100% of the Mets test positive for the Mets. So that's yeah, right, right. That won't preclude
1: with. that won't preclude baseball.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess, yeah, that, that's a good way to kind of transition into what might be the happier part of the talk, although the happier part begins yeah. with coronavirus discussion. So
1: with
0: <laughs> that. Uh, but just how do you feel about the fact that we might be having baseball in a month right now, but also might be having baseball in the backdrop of, the clear fact that the pandemic is again, raging out of control in so many parts of this country.
1: Right. So um, in a general sense, maybe it's just um, how I grew older and how I view these things. Uh, If, and when they play, I will be happy to watch. And when they don't play, whatever. (laughs) Um, I'm not, you know, I don't, scream about baseball not playing in january they don't play i don't watch so um i'm always amazed at the fans who are like i'll never watch again i'm like like whatever it's don't it's not that serious and if 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 one thing should have happened in the last three or four months none of this shit's serious yeah and enjoy it while it's there and don't worry about it when it's not um so, to me, I will watch opening day and I will watch you know i've i haven't missed a box score in probably twenty five years um I will read my box scores i will watch my highlights i'll read i'll be in i'll be into it um that doesn't mean I particularly like the extended playoffs or or some of the rules but You know, baseball is the only sport that any small change in the rules is like everyone swallows poison. You know, football, (laughs) I've been watching as a sports kind of stopgap the last few months, a lot of YouTube videos like, old this week in the AFL or, old this week in baseballs. And like in the NFL, like on their, you know, PR show, they'll be like, This year, you know, all the rules on receiving were changed to make the game more exciting. It's like no one squawks at all. So I don't love the second guy on second base to start a tie game. But who cares? I mean, like, does it really matter? I mean, think of all the crying and moaning when they got rid of the four-pitch intentional walk.
0: Mm.
1: Like, how instantly forgotten was that controversy? Mm. And the DH, too. It's like, who cares? I mean baseball's baseball it's going to be fun to watch these guys are frigging great um so if there's a season i'll i'll be watching
0: yeah i mean baseball for all baseball fans baseball is our favorite thing but our second favorite thing is complaining about baseball (laughs) right right yeah uh, any rule change will will give you excuse to kind of default to that yeah um yeah that, that, that complaining mindset, because that's that's just the way... Yeah. I, I think part of it might be, too, and, and this might relate back to what we were talking about with Cooperstown at the beginning of the show, that because baseball is so intimately connected to its past and its history, that that always seems to come up whenever there's a change proposed right. like that, that, well, this didn't happen in Ted Williams' day. Well, and yeah, and Williams also didn't bat against black pitchers for the majority of the Yeah, year. yeah, right, right. But... Uh, but that, that's, I mean, that's something that's, that's easily defaulted to for many baseball fans. And I, I'm guilty of that as well. Like, uh, right. you brought up the runner on second base. I, 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 that's a gimmick. It, and I think back yeah. to you know, my two favorite games ever. You know, favorite game ever is obviously Game 7 of 2016 World Series. Favorite regular season game is the Sandberg game. Both of those are excellent right. And those yeah, yeah. are not happy with right. the runner on second base to start the 10th inning.
1: Right. Um, it, would have saved, it would save Zobris that double. He wouldn't have gone through the effort.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I might also have another year in my life, honestly. If we didn't have to go through that much to the, the I was so I was at that game. I was at almost all
1: the games in that oh, series. Geez, I missed. I the only game I wasn't kind of it was a conscious decision because it was uh it was just a ticket that didn't work as smoothly was the game the Indians blew out. So game Game four. four. Yeah. Um So game seven, and even though I grew up, you know, I lived in Chicago a long time. I wasn't really a Cub fan. My friend uh, who grew up in Chicago uh, is a diehard. And being in that park and the ups and downs of that game, I've never seen a stadium so manically, you know, reacting. I mean, just the devastation of Cub fans, when the, when Davis' home run, when the Cubs would get at Like, it was this incredibly big psychological disaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, incredible to, to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about baseball, too, is like, and this is, there's two almost contradictory thoughts here, right? So you can read stories about baseball going back 130 years that say, one, it's not as good as it used to be. Two, players only earn it for money. When I played in 1870, we cared about the game. And three, owners saying we're all going to go bankrupt because our star wants $1,100 a year instead of nine hundred. <laughs> right? So you always have that. But, you know, baseball is, don't, you know, don't buy into kind of like it's not popular as it was back then because it's, one, it's, fundamentally wrong based on how revenue is counted. Two, uh, there was a great story. There's a writer named Maury Brown for Forbes. Hmm. And I think he wrote about, when people talk about, oh, the ratings for Game 7 in 2016 are so much worse than Game 7 in 1971, but the ratings for everything are down. Like, what All in the Family got in viewership is like five times what, you know, Big Bang Theory gets. Mm-hmm. So, just, you know, it's a metric that shouldn't be given the credence it's given. And the fact that the NFL is different, the NFL is the aberration. Baseball's not the aberration. Right. Um, but baseball's kind of conscious looking backwards is both look, Cooperstown, it's the product we sell, right? Although the hall also has a very strong, you know, today's game component. Um, But only in baseball, like, the truest thing that was said in the last year was when Adam Adovino said, I would strike out Babe Ruth on three pitches. Of course he would. Uh Of course he would. And the amount of people who came out to say, absolutely not. Babe Ruth would have adapted and whatever. No one says that, you know, Jesse Owens would win four gold medals. You know, Jesse Owens would be lucky to make his college track and field team. It's just a way of athletic development. Uh, and it hurts baseball because they have never known how to market their stars. And when they have, I was thinking about this this morning, because I really hope someone signs Puig. Puig is oh, yeah. one of my favorites. I love watching Puig for all his frustration and all his up and downness. He's a joy to watch. And the fact that he's been shit on for <laughs> Six years as a negative force. And I joked on Twitter this morning, like, I can't wait to watch Ronald Acuna ruin baseball again. Mm-hmm. Acuna is like one of the great joys to watch. The idea that there are people out there who go out of their way saying he's not appropriate. It's some a on disaster. his own team.
0: ball has a problem. Yeah. So some on his own team. Freddie Freeman calls him out. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, it's it's weird. It's a it's a weird thing, and I mean, it's certainly where my uh, biases are is to like guys like that. And what's funny is, like, as as someone who is fifty, almost fifty eight, and really started getting into baseball and reading about baseball and subscribing to sports news, like in like say nineteen seventy seventy one, the nineteen seventies baseball player generation were so vilified and so hated for, you know, not caring about the game and reading the wall street journal instead of the sporting news. And, you know, all they cared about were their investments. They get on the bus with a briefcase instead of, uh, whatever. Now everyone's like, that was the last golden age. <laughs> uh-huh. And, you know, and now we're like kind of the eighties are the last go And all the documentaries are now about the 86 Mets and, Cardinals of the '80s, and you know, baseball has to wait like 20
0: years to say, "Oh yeah, that was tremendous." Just to get a sense of what it might be like if baseball starts up in another month or yeah. twenty twenty, What was the vibe like as a fan, like, in, in terms of the legitimacy of what you were watching? Because because that seems to be the big question right now. Uh, is is this going to be viewed as a legitimate season as it's happening, or just as kind of right. a gimmick? that is here to kind of yeah. keep them used until. The yeah. Next
1: it, to some degree it's in the eye of the beholder. The, the problem with 81 was that the way they created the split created problems. So by kind of creating a second half situation and just looking at the season in two halves, but not looking at all at the totality of the season. And ironically it was the Reds uh, owner or Reds GM who at um, at one of the owners meetings when they were deciding on the split said, look, we finished whatever a game and a half out of first in the first half. And what if we finished a game and a half out in the second half to a different team? We're going to have the best record and not make the playoffs, which is exactly what happened to the Reds. Mm-hmm. They had The best record in major league baseball and didn't make the playoffs. Got Cardinals it. had the best record in the East and at least then didn't make the playoffs. So, there were particularly bad decisions made back then uh, that lent credence to a legitimacy issue. Hmm. Um, But do the Dodgers feel they're not a legitimate champion for a Absolutely not. That is a straight Dodger championship end of story. They won based on the rules. What's interesting about this year is, so in 81, both halves were a little less than 60 games. But they were very distinct. The first half wasn't really a pennant race because it wasn't yeah. it wasn't there. The second half was a pennant race, except four teams had already made the playoffs. <laughs> so there was less incentive, really. I think I know the A's and I think the Dodgers were the two out of four that finished over 500. Mm. The A's were... The A's were the only ones that were really close, I think, to winning both halves. Okay. Um, So you end up with a situation this year that I assume everyone will play the same amount of games. Everyone has the same standards, right? So in that sense, you can have legitimate pennant races. From an artistic point of view, pennant races tend to take time to develop. And if we're starting at the end of July and ending end of September... If by September 1st, the three top teams in the whatever East, the MLB East, Mm -hmm. you know, are 16 and 14, 15 and 15, and 14 and 16, is anyone going to be like, woohoo, it's September and what a tight race? It's going to be like, yeah, they all suck, you know, (laughs) or or whatever it's going to be. What was interesting in, in MLB in 1981? was sure there were pennant races in the second half. And I think the Brewers won on the last weekend, but had they just played the season straight through the top, um, I forget what it was the top four or five teams in the AL East would have been like within two and a half games of each other. Hmm. Had it been a full season record, that's a pennant race. Yeah. Yeah. That is a real pennant race and that's heated. Um, so I don't know how it's going to happen. Plus, to have a short season with extended playoffs, the extended playoff, the I mean, ex- expanded okay. amount of teams counters the pennant race. Yeah, if you're they going to try to, to
0: up... the that that's one thing that they did not get uh, that uh, because there's not more teams. There, there are not more teams in the playoffs. That, oh, good, no, good, okay. I not, that was that. contingent, I think on. An agreement that would have involved the players' oh, okay. grievance. So okay, it, good. it's going to be just justified in Yeah.
1: But even when they started talking about that, I'm like, these are contradictory things. You yeah. can generate interest if everyone makes it. Right? Yeah, but They're very geared towards the postseason because that's where the money is. And that's why they want to play as few games. So I'm I'm glad I must have missed that along the way. But um like anything, <laughs> it's as legitimate as you view it, right? So To me, I don't have, like, a dog in any fight. I'm not, like, a team-based rooter. I'll watch games, and it'll be fun, and I'll watch the playoffs, and it'll be fun, uh, assuming it's close to the actual thing. I mean, I don't know who are the players who are not going to play because there is an opt-out clause, you know, without suffering, you know, from your salary. So um, that might be the only interesting thing. Uh, in terms of the legis- legitimacy question, if a team doesn't win but their top three players sat out, yeah, that might feel weird. But then I was reading about like the Royals and kind of this is this helps the service time controversy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're going to start the year with your best players because you only have sixty games. Yeah, so idea of parking someone. Well, in a minor league that doesn't exist, <laughs> or or on this taxi squad, p- teams I would imagine are going to come out of the gate with their best shot, and yeah. that might be fun too. I mean, so Absolutely. look, let it comes down to a baseball's baseball, and it'll be fun to watch.
0: Yes, yeah, and that's that's the best part, and I I'd I like the idea that yeah, if they still try to manipulate service time in this season with with no minor league games. The Royals would just have to tell their best prospects, yeah, uh, just go to Omaha and think about what you did.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right. We'll talk to you in the spring, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: but and so, because every team is going to have to start with their best roster and just go full force, that to me, me at least, creates the idea that there might be a better chance of one team just coming completely out of nowhere and playing out of their mind for forty, right. or 40 games and sneaking in which right. to me is kind of great fun, honestly. I like. Yeah, I yeah. love to see like, an out-of-the-blue, like incredible Royals run or the a, a Marlins right. suddenly getting, getting God-knows-who to play well on that team for a, right. a short sample. Was yeah. there any team who made the playoffs in 81 who clearly didn't belong because of that format?
1: Well, the, the Royals uh, were kind of the signature because the Royals, I think... Out of all the four playoffs teams, the Royals were the only one that overall had a below 500 record Mm. for the whole season. Um, But, you know, in fairness, I mean, that is what it is. That's just unequivocally the case. But they were defending AL champs and, you know, they made the playoffs basically every year and they'd win the World Series four years later. Uh, It's not like they were a pretender in that in that sense they They did get swept they did get swept by the a's because the a's were that much better Mm. um but so you do run into that i mean you could look at the second half of of 81 and conceivably look at what is it now so it's a 10 team playoff uh yes right so if you look at 10 teams you get into some iffy people, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I have no doubt that there's going to be people who get in who are weak. Uh, but, and I don't know if, you know, the thing that used to set baseball apart, and I don't want to be against what I said earlier about like yeah, back in the day, but you didn't really have teams that, you know, finished 70 and 90 and not just made the playoffs but won the World Series.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was something even like, I mean, the 73 Mets, which are the worst of the pennant winners. What were they? 82 and 80 or yeah. whatever they were. They were 82 and 80. I mean, and they beat the Reds in the playoffs. I mean, they did have a lot of attributes. Um, if you get a situation where the Angels make the playoffs at, you know, 40, what what? am
0: trying to think what the numbers would be. 16, it would be like, or, you know, maybe like yeah. a 25 and 35, something like that.
1: Yeah, right. And all of a sudden in the World Series? That's going to feel weird. Yeah. Uh, not so much like it would in basketball, where sometimes you do end up with, you know, low seed teams that go far. But in baseball, we we really don't have that. So even the wild card teams tend to have winning records.
0: Right. The, but the that's only... because of the long schedule. Yeah. The only example of that that I can think might be close to a comp was when the strike stopped the 94 season. I believe the Texas Rangers were in first place with a below 500 record in the AL West. When was, it was that when that, I remember the yeah. AL West used to be like notoriously bad. Yeah, um, yeah. So that would have been the only other time I can think where where that happened. And then there's the 2006 yeah. Cardinals who won the whole damn thing with 83 because there is no God. So... <laughs> uh,
1: but I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think this season and, and I do kind of appreciate the people getting back to Jason Stark, who's like, embrace embrace how weird yeah. it could be. Yeah.
0: Yes. I, I think if you had a team below 500 make the series this year, it would just be like all baseball fans would look at it as like, well, yeah, it was a 60-game season, so what the hell? Why not?
1: Yeah. bring the- Right. And, and that's going to be true if someone hits 400. Um, yeah. If someone, you know, sets some kind of, you know, short season record. I mean, who knows? Yeah, and and you know the the thing about baseball too historically, and this is I think an incorrect narrative of the Sosa maguire thing, because baseball was kind of on its way back. Yes, fairly quickly, and Ripken really is the one who gets a lot of credit for that. I think somewhat justly. Mm-hmm. You don't know. I mean, someone could come out of the gate and have a fifty-game hitting streak, and not, you know how crazy would that be to you know not just break the hitting streak. But hit in every game of the season <laughs> because it's oh, man. a 60 season. Yeah, right? oh, absolutely. I, and I there's so, so much stuff that. that can happen, um, and and baseball is filled with those things in history where something happens out of the blue and heroes are made. Even in the case we're talking about, the Angels, right? Let's say the Angels sneak in with a losing record, but Trout has a postseason like Bonds had in 2 It's going to be like, oh my God, Mike Trout finally had his moment and he led this team and saved the game. We've seen that narrative a million times and there's no reason to think it can't happen. I do think, getting back to a point we said earlier, it's like, I think there's a chance they play 20 games and shut down.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then, then I don't even know what that means. It's not even a season. The records, baseball records count. So it's not like those things will disappear, but no one's going to be a champion. No one's going to be, no one will be declared World Series winner or pennant winner. It'll just be, here's the numbers. Um, So, I mean, I think that's the fear or should be the fear for all of the sports. I mean, I just saw a different sport altogether. I mean, New York City canceled the marathon. That's November 1st. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, and granted, that's a crowded people close together type of thing. Um, But the idea that baseball will start July 26th or whatever the number day is and go straight through as planned. You have to be a real optimist to believe that's true, just like this NBA stuff. I mean, the idea that they're just going to start and finish like they think they will. We're seeing this. I mean, you see what's happening in Texas or in Florida. I mean, these guys could pretend that things are going to run the course as they've decided it would, but that's not how things get decided these
0: days. So It's, it's all, all out of our hands. And, yeah, if yeah. baseball only played a 20-game season and then had to shut everything down, I think Mike Trout would just have to settle for a four-war season.
1: Yeah, right, right, right. His worst season, he'll have led yeah. Major
0: League Baseball in war. Yeah, <laughs> but, but uh, so, yeah, I, I guess to kind of tie this all together, that if somehow we end up playing all 60 games and end up making it to the World Series where there is a champion crown, regardless of who it is, regardless of how they got there, that might honestly feel like a win just yeah. in and of itself. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think any
1: any positive sports moments that come out of, the replaying of any of the sports is going to be seen as as something maybe not worth it but something close to worth it right so you know opening day starts and someone pitches a Mm no-hitter and it will be like this is what we love about it yep you never can expect this no one had time to get ready it's the first game in front of yeah like these we this is what we all love about sports, right? These storylines that you can't quite predict end up happening. Uh, And what that says about the sport, how people react to it, is kind of the magic of it all, right? So I have no doubt that if they play, there's going to be phenomenal things that happen. And we're going to be thrilled by it. (laughs) You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, And that's why I don't understand people like, you know, they haven't come to an agreement and I'm a longtime baseball fan and I wish they were playing and they've screwed the game. So now that they're back, I refuse to watch. It's like, well, then (laughs) I I don't believe the first part of your premise that, you know, you're a diehard and you just wish they would play at any cost. They're going to play at any cost. Yeah. Oh, big time. Especially you're sitting sitting at home watching on TV. You have zero cost. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> the players and their families and the the on field staff there have they have plenty of cost. More than the owners have.
0: Oh absolutely. Are, yes. And that's you know mingling with the team.
1: Right? So I I mean I, one of the things I had hoped people got out of split season was understanding kind of the human nature of players. Instead of these kind of things that do something and don't deserve their money and they're greedy. These are human beings who are trying to make where they work, work for the best of them. I mean, people who would move their family from New York to Seattle for a $5,000 raise firmly believe that someone shouldn't change teams for an extra $50 million. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and just trying to kind of connect that to the people. You know, if you could never leave your job that you hated, what would that make you feel like in terms of <laughs> a it would person? Like, it would make you feel like a Marlon. So, yeah, right. Uh, the players are going to be most at risk. And I would like people to kind of really consider that. Yes. Uh, as they watch and as they react to how things unfold and and, and how it plays out. Because you're not at risk. You're... you're Like I say, you're a guy like watching your highlights on ESPN. You have nothing at stake. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's the thing about fandom, right? You have nothing at stake. You pretend that you have everything at stake because you root for these guys, but you have nothing at stake. Your job doesn't depend on it. Your, Your life doesn't depend on it. Your economics don't depend on it. And certainly your health doesn't depend on it. -hmm. And these guys are going to be standing next to each other, not like the NBA. I mean, I don't even know how they play.
0: That's yeah. Uh, I can't even be. How players are accepting that?
1: Yeah, that's that's absurd. So my hope is that, and I see some of it on Twitter. I mean, Twitter is not really that representative of everything, Um, but um, I hope people will come out of this with a sense of kind of players as
0: people, and not just players as things and And I mean, to kind of put this all pull this all together, i guess um if we get anywhere if if we emerge from this crisis uh and you know both on a coronavirus and an economic level in this country, if we learn anything to kind of keep going as a country to keep going keep going as a species, we need a greater sense of almost radical empathy for other people at this point and, right I mean, recognizing. Humanity of others as the priority, and uh, and so if it gets to a point, you know, where there's 20 games into the season where we realize this just isn't going to work, or hell, even if we can't right. even opening day and realize that it's not right, work, then we need to understand that that is for the best right now. And, yeah, and the health of the the people that are putting it on the line essentially just to entertain us, their health, right has to be the number one priority still right and if, if but we, we live in
1: a country where 30 percent of the people are now like hey you're gonna die anyway so yeah
0: don't complain yeah. so i
1: mean you just hope that the more rational people approach it that way yeah. um it's, it's so i don't know i mean we'll, we'll see i you know but certainly the idea of some bit of normalcy which involves watching some ball games is welcome
0: yeah it's so, yeah, normalcy as long as you understand that it's a new era where we need a new mindset so, yeah right exactly yeah, normalcy, normalcy in a lot of places will be a failure uh right it's, you yeah but you also need comfort and you also need to occasionally have things that make you happy
1: so, yeah exactly yes yeah, it's not to
0: be discounted yeah on the subject of things that make you happy uh jeff where can people pick up your book
1: so split season is still available on Amazon. Uh, definitely Kindle is your cheapest option. Uh, it did not come out of a first pressing. So um, so prices will fluctuate. <laughs> uh, so wait for a used copy that will cost you like 12 bucks instead of when they disappear. And all of a sudden the only listing says $110. Um, and it's funny because it, I mean it did not get into a second pressing or a paperback edition. I'm trying to work on a paperback edition. Um, And yet out of all the books that came out five years ago, it's the one that still resonates. I still do a lot of interviews and people comment on it all the time. And certainly with this year's short season and labor strife to come, it'll still be relevant. So I'm hoping to find a way to make it more available, but for now it's out there.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a great book. It is a great compelling read about a very unique year in baseball. And as we've been discussing for the past hour, it is relevant as hell right now in 2020. <laughs> uh, Thank anything you. Else you'd like to plug while you're still here? No, I'm good. Uh, just best of health to everybody. Hopefully, uh,
1: you know, when everything settles out, you can all come to Cooperstown. It's beautiful here.
0: Yes. I, I cannot wait for the next time I'm, I'm in. <laughs> Cause it is, it is, I mean, it's cliche to say, but it's baseball heaven on earth that, yeah. uh, Uh, And if you've never been, you've got to go at some point. So uh, Jeff Katz, this has been Baseball Heaven for the past hour. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure.